Jerusalem has long been the focal point of the still unsolved problem of Palestine. There is no Palestine, no Palestinians, there never was, there never will be. begin our exploration of Hamidian Palestine this season by taking a deep dive into Palestine's administrative boundaries in the late 19th century, because those boundaries will give us both the mental and literally the physical map for what comes next. In season one, we saw how 18th century Palestine was ruled pretty autonomously by strongmen like Dahir al-Umar, Jazzar Pasha, and several others. And it was precisely this kind of autonomous and sometimes tyrannical rule that the Ottomans sought to bring to an end with the Tanzimat reforms in places like Palestine. Palestine which, by the mid-19th century, referred to an area with a firmly entrenched toponymic identity that stretched back thousands of years— What I mean by that is that over the course of the 19th century, the area that we broadly recognize as Palestine today was referred to as Palestine with increasingly wide recognition. The proliferation of missionary schools in urban centers and their emphasis on biblical history and their obsession with Palestine as a holy land all helped make Palestine more and more recognizable as a geographic entity. So given this, and given our present understandings of governance, you will not be surprised to know that plans were made to transform Palestine into a governorate or a wilayah, and to appoint over it a governor to manage its affairs. And you know what? despite the fact that you will never, ever see an Ottoman map with a wilaya or a province called Palestine on it, that is exactly what happened. In July of 1872, four years before Sultan Abdul Hamid came into power, the Ottomans did, in fact, turn Palestine into a wilaya. The arrival of the soon-to-be governor Suraya Pasha was marked with significant fanfare. Suraya Pasha, you may remember, was the Syrian governor responsible for the disarmament of the Fallahin in the 1860s, and he previously served as the governor or wali of Damascus. So a local newspaper captured the mood of both his arrival as well as the news that Palestine was to become a province. The newspaper said, quote, All of the sons of our city, no matter what religion they adhere to, went out to meet him outside the city. As he set his foot on the threshold of the city gate, the cannons of the citadel thundered, 
Thousands of candles lit the darkness of the night. The shops and trading houses had not closed in order to honor him. The earth trembled from the roaring of gunfire and the loud playing of flutes and drums. The whole city was filled with rejoicing and elation. End quote. The report went on to say that he was welcomed by a delegation from, quote, all of the cities of Palestine. End quote. And so it was that Suraya Pasha became the governor of the province of Palestine for less than a week. <laughs> I'll let historian Johann Busau tell us what happens next. Quote, On the 23rd of July, less than a week after Suraya Pasha had taken office, a telegram from the central government arrived, stating that the creation of the Palestinian province had been revoked. Accordingly, the districts of Nablus and Acre were again severed from Jerusalem. Nevertheless, the district of Jerusalem retained an elevated status. It was now declared an unattached or independent district. That is, an autonomous sub-province that was not subordinate to any other provincial capital, but was directly administered by the Interior Ministry of Istanbul. End quote. The decision was made to transform Palestine into an administrative territory that is watched very closely by the central government and reports directly to the Interior Ministry. Deciding what to do with Palestine, it turns out, was not a question of simple geography or a reflection of the local will. Well, another Ottoman statesman, the Grand Wazir Midhat Pasha, a close friend of Yusuf Diyah al-Khalidi, and honestly perhaps one of the most famous Ottoman politicians and thinkers of the period, he was brought in to sort out this mess. And after some debate, the province was no more. In place was a mutasarrafit, the mutasarrafit of Al-Quds al-Sharif, which encompassed most of what we recognize as modern Palestine, with the exception of Nablus and the Galilee, that is, the north of Palestine, essentially. And that part of Palestine was to be administered as a part of the province of Syria, and later as part of the province of Beirut. So what happened, right? Like, why did the Ottomans first create and then renege on their commitment to turn Palestine into a province? And why, upon doing so, did they cleave the territory into two administrative zones? And to understand this, we need to unpack some of the geopolitics of that time. Within Palestine, Reports from the time indicate that the majority of the notables of Jerusalem and the notables of other towns preferred the option of creating a province out of the entirety of geographic Palestine, a united province including basically all of what we recognize as Palestine today, as well as some parts of modern-day Jordan. And it makes sense. If you go back to season one, you will remember the intermarriages that occurred between notables of Al-Quds and Nablus. 
which reflects, among other things, the extensive political and commercial and social dealings and interactions between the different regions of Palestine. You may also recall that the Ottoman land privatization campaign, which I discussed in the last episode of Season 2, meant that the notables from Palestine's various urban centers now owned parcels of land all over the country. Well, having your property now fall in a different administrative zone could create some unnecessary challenges. Last thing I'll say on this is that the changes to municipal governments and the bolstering of city councils meant that the notable families, particularly those of Al-Quds, were now spreading their influence far outside of their city, shrinking their administrative zone by absorbing part of it into a different administrative zone, so that is, shrinking their sphere of influence by cleaving away Nablus and Akka and Safad, that risked minimizing their power. But the desires of the Palestinian notables need to be weighed against the challenges of the empire. For the notables, Palestine was the center of their lives, just as it is the center of this podcast. But Palestine was not the center of the Ottoman universe. For several centuries, Nablus and Yaffa and Akka and Al-Quds were pretty peripheral parts of an empire ruled from a distant capital in Istanbul. But with each passing year, Palestine's increasing integration into the global economy and interest in Palestine's status as a holy land was captivating more and more of the European Christian imagination. The threat posed by this European fixation turned what was once a peripheral part of the empire into a place of central importance. And it wasn't just the European powers who represented the threat to Ottoman sovereignty over Palestine in the late 19th century. The Egyptian-Ottoman Wars of the 1830s brought about an end to nearly a decade of Egyptian rule in Palestine. Muhammad Ali Pasha, the Khedive who you may remember from season one, went back to being an Ottoman vassal, in theory at least, but in practice, the Khedive was the autonomous ruler of Egypt. Though a tenuous peace existed between the Khedival regime and the high port, there was little love and even less trust between the two. The Ottomans always suspected that Egypt had plans to reclaim greater Syria and the Hejaz for itself, and the Ottomans also feared that turning Palestine into a province and placing it in the hands of a powerful governor may make both the territory and the governor himself susceptible to Egyptian influence. Now, the minds behind the gates of the high port could respond to both the European intervention and the Khedival threat with an increased military presence, which they probably could have done, but with pretty great difficulty. I mean, prior to the First World War, the Ottomans did not have a major military garrison stationed in Palestine, and the ceaseless rise in European intervention meant that the great powers would have probably considered an Ottoman military buildup 
pretty massive provocation and a threat to their pilgrims and their diplomats. Just remember for a moment, the Crimean War began because of a conflict between differing Christian denominations in Jerusalem, and that resulted in a proto-world war with 600,000 dead and the loss of Ottoman territory. And that is to say nothing of the incredibly limited military capabilities that the Ottomans had at their disposal in the 1870s which I won't dwell on too much right now because I have a whole episode prepared for you guys on that subject later in the season. And yet another factor which weighed heavily on the high port's decision to not turn Palestine into a province was the increasingly important role that Jerusalem and its environs played in bolstering the status of various Ottoman sultans as caliphs that is, leaders of the entire Muslim world. And while this was always somewhat important, it became even more important as the high port's own policies alienated an increasing number of Muslims. In a sense, the less Islamic the empire actually became, the more important it was that the sultan reaffirm his status as the caliph, That meant keeping a close eye on Jerusalem, a major pilgrimage site for Muslims. Regarding the Ottoman claim to the caliphate and its relationship to Jerusalem, Butros Abomenne writes, An early facet of this policy, that is, the policy to firmly establish control over Jerusalem, could be illustrated by the special interest that Sultan Mahmud II showed in Jerusalem its Muslim inhabitants, and its sacred shrines. Extensive repairs and restorations were undertaken by the sultan in the Muslim holy places. He tried, moreover, to foster ties with local notables. For instance, in 1813, he invited a Muslim dignitary of Jerusalem to Istanbul and received him as an honored guest. Perhaps this was an attempt on the part of the sultan to improve his image in Muslim eyes at a time when the sultan was trying to have his assumption of the caliphate widely accepted, such acts were, it seems, deemed necessary. This special interest which the Ottoman sultans showed in Jerusalem continued under Mahmud's successors and indeed reached a climax in the later days of Abdul Aziz and especially under Abdul Hamid. End quote. Now the last thing that I will say but why the Ottomans needed to be very careful about Palestine's administrative setup comes down to the movement of missionaries and European Christian pilgrims within Palestine. Most of you will not be surprised to learn that nearly every part of Palestine carries with it some biblical significance. A Christian pilgrim may arrive at the port of Yaffa stop in Nazareth to see Jesus' hometown, head to Tiberias to see the place where miracles were performed before making a final stop in Jerusalem. Well, this is all fine if the pilgrims have arrived with the permission of the high port, and if they behave in compliance with the law of the land. But if the visitors have come with more nefarious intentions, then putting up bureaucratic red tape in their way in the form of multiple entry permits that are required to travel through these administrative zones, 
may actually be a helpful and strategic decision. And so, with the Ottoman grip over its own territory beginning to slip more and more, and a military option off the table, an administrative approach seemed to present a promising return on investment. The Ottomans were left with two distinct options. One was to fulfill the desires of the local population and turn Palestine into a united province, but leave it potentially more vulnerable to European intervention. Or option number two, turn much of Palestine into a centrally administered zone, reducing the autonomy of local actors while placing bureaucratic red tape in the path of nefarious actors or traveling or conducting business within Palestine. And chipping away at some of Palestine by absorbing it into another administrative zone is part of the bureaucratic obstacle course that the Ottomans hope to build for these unwelcome European visitors. And so it came to be that the Ottomans created the Motusarrafet of Al-Quds al-Sharif, the borders of this administrative zone would continue to stretch and contract on numerous occasions until finally settling on the administrative boundaries of about 1887 through 1888. For the most part, the Mutasarrafate of Al-Quds stretched across the center of Palestine to include the West Bank and coastal cities like Gaza and Yafa, and it went quite well into the Naqab as well, although not quite as far as Al-Aqaba or Umm Rashash. But again, it did not include Nablus and Akka and Safad. Now the key administrative feature of the Mutasarrafit is that it would report directly to the interior ministry of the high port. And though it would be ruled over by a Mutasarrif, it would be managed very closely in tandem with Istanbul. Now, something that I found absolutely fascinating about this debate over the administrative future of Palestine is that within Ottoman decision-making circles, there was one key point that both sides agreed on. Behind the gates of the high port, both the side that wanted to create a united province and the side that wanted to create a divided motasarrafate referred to the land as Palestine. That alone maybe is not that interesting, though. I mean, I mentioned on so many occasions that well before the 19th century, the name Palestine was in common usage. What I found fascinating is that according to historian Johann Bussau, both sides agreed in the end that however the territory is administered, it should not be called Palestine. Now, unfortunately for me, Bussau does not elaborate on the subject and kind of leaves it at that. But I'm sure you can imagine the rabbit hole that I descended into for quite some time trying to get to the bottom of this. And unfortunately, I didn't really get anywhere for a long time. It's always really difficult to figure out why someone didn't do something or why something didn't happen. And so I reached out to a friend of mine for some help. Dr. Zachary Foster knows more about the name Palestine than almost anyone else in the world. He also happens to be a pretty nice guy. 
he runs a website called palestinenexus.com where you can sign up for courses and get all sorts of cool information about Palestine. Anyway, I posed this question to him. Why was there bipartisan support in Istanbul to not use the name Palestine for something that both sides clearly called Palestine? Now, I included in my question some of my assumptions about why this may be the case, and it turns out that most of my assumptions were essentially correct. I won't quote Dr. Foster you know, word for word, but basically what he said can be summarized as follows. Palestine was definitely a popularly used name at that point. We already know that it had been used in various forms for literally thousands of years up to this point. The problem is that Palestine was also widely recognized as a biblical name, and with that came a Christian imagination backed by an army of missionaries. To call it Palestine, the high port feared, would be to ignite the Christian imagination and invite even more missionary activity. For all their faults, the Ottomans knew what their rivals wanted pretty well. Author Lorenzo Camel, he mentions this very interesting anecdote about the nationalism, that's what he describes it as, the nationalism that the Christians felt for Palestine. And I don't think he throws that around lightly. I mean, he has this fascinating passage that reads as follows in one of his books. Quote, The Archbishop of York himself, William Thompson, had been clear on his feelings during the inaugural meeting of the Palestine Exploration Fund in 1865. Palestine, he claimed, is the land to which we may look with as true a patriotism as we do to this dear old England. It follows that local Arabs were generally depicted as foreigners in their own land, and their unpatriotic attitudes were often described using offensive tones. Now here, Lorenzo Camel adds a, a longer entry from uh, the Archbishop of York. It says, quote, The Arabs who are superficially clever and quick-witted worship one thing and one thing only, power and success. The British authorities, knowing as they do the treacherous nature of the Arab, they have to watch carefully and constantly that nothing should happen which might give the Arabs the slightest grievance or ground of complaint. The Fallah is at least four centuries behind the times, and the Effendi, who, by the way, is the real gainer from the present system, is dishonest, uneducated, greedy, and as unpatriotic as he is inefficient. End quote. So there you have it, right? The Arab, the indigenous inhabitant of Palestine, is not the real patriot. The real patriot is the European who has the biblical patriotism of Palestine embedded in their heart. Now, springboarding off of the insights of Dr. Foster, I personally think that there was also another motivation for choosing the name that they ended up choosing, which is the Mutasarrafet of Al-Quds al-Sharif. Al-Quds has been called a lot of things. Right? Jerusalem and Al-Quds are just two of the well-known names that we know today, in the Roman period, uh, for example, the city was called Ilya. That's a name that's still widely known by Palestinians today. But the two most common names for the city in the Arabic language are Al-Baytul Maqdis and Al-Quds. 
In any case, in the wake of relentless European intervention and missionary activity, I think that calling the entire area Al-Quds al-Sharif was an Ottoman attempt at making an overtly Islamic claim to sovereignty over the land. Something that, despite decades of secularizing reforms, they must have felt compelled to do, given that the survival of the caliphate and its legitimacy depended on their ability to maintain control over Islam's three holiest cities. Palestine's late Ottoman administrative complexion would go on to have such an enormous impact in shaping the political, economic, and social trajectory of its inhabitants, and their relationship with each other, and their relationship with power. And this is where I intend to pick up things in the next episode. I want to sink my teeth into the way in which Palestine's administrative contours of the Hamidian era impacted Palestinians in all of its major urban centers. Thank you.